Good morning to you all. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if we haven't met, would you please come up and say hi to me after this? Um, all the children, all the adults, you're all welcome. I, I'd love to say hi and make your acquaintance. Uh, as we pick back up in our series on the life of Peter, we're now about 50 days removed from when Jesus went to the cross, and a lot happened in those 50 days. Uh, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. We know that he gathered up his disciples and met with them. Uh, we know that he restored Peter to ministry. It's a story that we looked at last week. And uh, we also know that he made many appearances to many different people all over the area during that time. Uh, and then, uh, you know, at the conclusion of that time, he ascended into heaven. And right before he ascended into heaven, he gathered up his disciples and gave them some really curious instructions. Let me uh, share them with you here. This is what he said to them. He said, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. And then he said this. He said, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, I don't know, but my bet is the disciples didn't know what Jesus was talking about when he said, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I can almost imagine them with confused looks on their faces, looking at each other saying, what in the world is he talking about? Well, it turns out that what Jesus was talking about is the very context of Peter's first sermon, which is what we're looking at this morning. When the Holy Spirit moved in a dramatic and historic way in the life of the church, he came upon people, he was poured out over people like a mighty rushing wind. There were tongues of fire that were dancing and people were uh, speaking in all kinds of different languages and understanding everybody in their own language. You, and, and, uh, and you can just imagine the ruckus that this would have created in the city. And so a crowd gathered, a bunch of people gathered, and, the, and many of them were confused by what in the world is going on here. And some even thought they were drinking, like that was the only way they could explain this mysterious event in their midst. And that's right where we're picking up this morning because it was in that context that Peter stood up and he delivered his first sermon. And he proclaimed repentance and the forgiveness of sins at the celebration of Pentecost. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Let's look together. I'm going to read Acts 2 verses 14 through 41. Hear the word of the Lord. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above and, on the, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. And gr- the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, I, what a momentous occasion of you at work. I pray that you would help us to see what you were up to, to understand it, to trust it, to see ourselves in, our, in this story. I pray that you would be at work right now in our midst, helping us to understand this word that we might be convicted comforted and encouraged and instructed by it. And would you help me to love these friends well and to speak in fidelity with what you did. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you, if you ever want to hear a good story, then, uh, then what you should do is you should go up to a pastor 
and you should ask them about their first sermon. I guarantee you there's a story there, okay? <laughs> like whatever, whatever they were feeling or thinking, whatever they talked about, whatever they actually might remember, you know, during his first sermon. Uh, I heard a story, uh, the Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor, had a school of preaching, and they had a tradition where they would take their students and they would on the spot give them a text to preach and uh, invite them to preach it to, to Reverend Spurgeon and the rest of the staff, like on the spot. And so there was this one young man who was given the story about Zacchaeus, and he stood up in front of everybody, his classmates, and uh, this famed preacher, and, uh, and he said, Zacchaeus was of little stature, so am I. And Zacchaeus was up a tree, and so am I right now. And Zacchaeus, and uh, I, I, you know, I don't know what grade he got on that sermon, but I think he probably went on to do very well in ministry. He never, never said too much. I can't help but think about these stories uh, when I think about Peter's first sermon and about how hard it must have been to stand up in front of this crowd in Jerusalem and speak to them. Because only 50 days ago, a crowd in Jerusalem, no doubt populated by some of the same people that were there that day, killed his best friend and his leader and got away with it. I mean, the emotional conflict that he must have had in his inner being must have just been tremendous. But if there's any sign of inner conflict in Peter, you do not see it in this story. In fact, what you see is him standing up and delivering a sermon that became a model for apostolic preaching. And when you look at it, you see that what he did was actually quite simple. He explained the scriptures, he challenged their hearts, and he appealed to grace. That's it. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the way Peter explained the scriptures, the way he challenged their hearts, and the ways that he appealed to grace. First, he explained the scriptures. You probably noticed that as I was reading through it, but three different times, Peter uses Old Testament texts to make an argument before the people, okay? He, the first one, is, I'm going to go through each one of them, so you just need to know. Uh, the first one is from Joel 2, that starts in verse 17. The second one is, is Psalm 16, that starts in verse 25. And the third one is Psalm 110, and that starts in verse 34. Each of these, Paul cited, or Peter cited, and in each of these, he's making particular arguments rooted in an understanding of these Old Testament passages. So I'm going to work through each one of them. The first thing he does is he uses the passage from Joel 2 to explain what was happening in their midst, this uh, supernatural event or this movement of the Spirit that's happening at Pentecost. He says, these people aren't drunk. It's only the third hour uh, of the day. That means it's about 9 a.m., okay? Uh, and then he goes on to say that this is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy that the people of God received uh, centuries ago, where in Joel 2 it says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. 
And you see that no people group is immune from this. You see men and women, young people, old people, servants and masters. The only distinguishing characteristic of any significance by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what would have been tremendous, maybe even unnerving for this crowd, would have been noticing that the only people who have received the Holy Spirit moving in them would have been those who followed Jesus and not anybody else. And it's also important that we understand that God has never interacted with his people in such a way in the history of redemption. Like there, there are times when the Spirit moved in particular ways and accomplished great things, but that was always anecdotal in the Old Testament. What we have here is the establishment of a pattern. This is why you might see in like Psalm 55, David will say, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The coming of the Holy Spirit, indwelling God's people, sealing us for redemption, shaping us in righteousness, this is something new that God is doing. It is something wonderful. And so what we hear will act of the age of grace And it's characterized by the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't go to the temple anymore to meet with God. What we are are living tabernacles ourselves. And this is, and what Peter is saying is that this was always the plan that God had for his people. It's right there in Joel. This is what God articulated and you're bearing witness to this historical event right now. And he ends this quote with the astonishing claim that it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the marker of the Holy Spirit is on those who follow Jesus and no one else. And that's why Peter goes on to explain about Jesus' resurrection. And he uses Psalm 16 to do it. Now look, there's no doubt there would have been rumors all over the city about Jesus' resurrection. There's no doubt there would have been people saying, I've heard this, or I've seen this, or my neighbor said this. Like That that would have been uh, prolific throughout the city. But what Peter is, is he's standing up and saying, I'm an eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. But I'm not, not, you don't just have to take my word for it. The scriptures have been pointing to the resurrection of Christ the entire time. It's a, and so uh, when he quotes Psalm 16, he's saying that you also have the testimony of God's word that this resurrection was always in view. Look at verse 27. This is the key verse. David wrote this psalm and he says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. The, the, the key question here is, who is the Holy One that he's talking about in that verse? Corruption is a word that's used to describe what happens to a body after it's been dead for a while. So you won't allow my body to decay for any amount of time, is, is, is what that's saying. And who is the Holy One? Well, Peter's argument is that it can't, David can't be talking about himself. Because he says, we all know that David died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And sure enough, in Jerusalem, there was a marker where David's tomb was. 
I could even, when he's talking about this, I could just imagine David standing up and saying, we know that David died and that he's buried. And so his argument goes that, um, that, uh, that uh, because David was a prophet, he foresaw and was speaking about Jesus the, holy, the whole time. That the resurrection of Jesus was always the plan. And so then he uses Psalm 110 to explain the authority of Jesus. Now you need to know that Psalm 110 is an anchor text of the early church's uh, preaching. Those early church leaders like Peter pointed to it often as a way of trying to help explain who Jesus is. And he says, once again, that David was talking about Jesus. When he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That when Jesus ascended, he was placed at God's right hand and currently rules with authority. Not only was he resurrected, but God exalted him and honored him. So that's where Jesus is right now ruling. And so the crux of Peter's argument he is explaining what they are seeing, what was happening in their midst. Uh, he was explaining it in light of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And he uses their scriptures to do it. Now, just think about that for a second. Who is Peter talking to? It's Pentecost. The, the, the people that are in Jerusalem are devout Jews who have gathered there for, the, for uh, observing a religious holiday together. These are people whose lives would have been steeped in the scriptures. They would have been intimately familiar with every passage that he... Peter is saying, you missed it. Peter is saying, if you read your scriptures and it's not about Jesus, then you got it wrong. Over the course of the last couple of months, as we've looked at Peter, like we know by now that he's got spunk, right? Like we've seen it several times. But there's a level of audacity here in what Peter is saying that would have been really hard for them to hear. And you know, I think one of the hardest things about being a preacher is that it's so easy to speak truth and miss the heart completely. It's like the easiest thing to do. But we need to understand here that Peter is not just aiming at their heads when he quotes scripture to them, when he explains the scripture. He's really challenging their hearts. I, could, I can't stop thinking about the story of the Emmaus Road that we preached on a couple months ago where the resurrected Jesus appears to a couple of his disciples and they didn't know who he was. And he gets together with them and uh, he reveals himself to them and all along the way he, he, uh, he explained to them how this, all of the scriptures pointed to him. And they said to each other later, did not our hearts burn within us Did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? Listen, that's what God's word does. And Hebrews is called a double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and marrow. 
and even discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That God's word, when applied, actually does a heart surgery to us in ways that only it can. And so what Peter is doing as he brings the scriptures to bear is he's giving them God's word and he's just allowing it to go to work on them. And he applies it to their hearts in a really powerful way. Twice in this passage, he tells them that they are guilty of Jesus' death. Do you notice that? It's first in verse 23, you crucified him by the hands of lawless men. Verse 36, he says it again. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In both of these cases, the Greek is emphatic here. He's saying, you, you did it. And not only that, but you used the hands of lawless men to do it. Now that would have really stung. Because when he says that, he's talking about the honoring of the Mosaic law. There there are those who follow the Mosaic law, and there are those who didn't. And so what he's saying is, you couldn't get it done using the laws that we were all bound by, and so you went outside God's law in order to get it done. That one would have really stung. And I just wonder what Peter's tone was in that moment, right? Like maybe he was on fire, (laughs) yelling and shouting and, you know. Or maybe he had a softer tone as he said this, these things to them. No doubt it would have been really hard. No doubt, no doubt he was laying on them the guilt of the death of their Messiah on the shoulders of everyone there. And he was saying, you are all responsible, whether you were there when it happened or not. There's a corporate responsibility for the death of Christ. The claim of the Bible that we all have to do business with is that we all share in this guilt. One of my favorite hymns, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Boy, he got in their face, didn't he? It'd be a real mistake for us to let Peter get in their face and not let him get in our face too. And so here's the question. Do you have a sense of the sin in your hearts that put Jesus on a cross? Like, are you aware of that, when you look at your heart, what do you see? If your heart's at all like mine, then you know that even our best moments are laced with selfish intentions. And that there's no end to what our hearts are capable of when it comes to understanding our own guilt. And it would be easy At that very moment, when we learn to see our guilt, and we begin to understand the enormity of it, to just throw up our hands and say, I give up. I'm guilty. 
I don't know what to do with any of this. Or it would be equally as easy to, to seek to develop ways to ignore our guilt and just say, look, easy, I'm just doing my best. And either of those options are available to you. Or maybe you have a different way of dealing with your guilt. There's no end to the ways that we can rationalize, the ways that we can transfer, the ways we can obfuscate, the ways we can justify ourselves when our hearts are challenged. But listen, whatever method is, whatever your method is, there's one thing I can just flat out guarantee you that none of those will be sufficient for dealing with it. It might help you understand it for a time, but none of it will deal fully and finally with your guilt. It doesn't make it go away. And that's the problem with learning to see our guilt. It can feel like there's no end to it or like there's no way out from under it. It can be a lot easier to just ignore it. But here's the thing. There is a way of dealing with it. And Peter doesn't just leave this crowd ashamed of their guilt. He didn't just leave them there to suffer under the weight of their guilt. And this is where Peter appeals to grace in a dramatic and a profound way. Verse 37 is beautiful. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You remember what Jesus said that they would be proclaiming right before his ascension? This is what he's doing right now. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What was the, the very last, how did the Joel 2 quote end? It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And listen, this is the wonder of the gospel. Is that the same man who was killed by our guilt offers salvation from our guilt. That, that not only that, but he goes on and attributes the merits of a righteous life for you. He doesn't just declare you innocent, but he declares you righteous. It was my sin that held him there until it was a me life. I know that it is finished. What's finished? Everything that is necessary for the salvation of those who believe in Jesus Christ. If grace is a gift to the undeserving, then what Peter did was make a grand appeal to grace for them. And we can't forget that Peter is somebody that knew what grace was. I mean, he blew it, didn't he? If you're listing out the names of the people that were complicit in Jesus' death, Peter's name is going to be early on that list. And he abandoned Jesus and even denied him. And Jesus restored him because of grace. And so what we have here is a man who's preaching about grace from a heart that understands the grace that he's received 
Boy, that's particularly powerful. And it's particularly beautiful. And what happened? 3,000 souls. That the Spirit moved in such a way that he added 3,000 souls to the fledgling church that Jesus Christ started. Was started as 120 huddled up in an upper room, praying and waiting to be clothed from power on high, swelled by 3,000 that day, repented and were baptized. Now listen, I, I think it's hard for us to understand today, but for a Jew to receive baptism would have been a really big deal. Because what it was, was a rite for Gentile converts to symbolize a break with one's past and the washing away of all defilements. It was this uh, visible sign of an inward reality that the Holy Spirit had worked into each one of them. They wouldn't allow themselves to be baptized in public if their faith wasn't real. And there's a scholar, this is really, I want to see his work. I couldn't find it anywhere, but it's mentioned several times. There's a scholar who looked at what ancient Jerusalem would have looked like in that day and like detailed out where all the pools were, where people could be baptized. And it's an amazing picture. Just think about that. 3,000 people getting baptized in the city of Jerusalem all through the day. What a testament to the city of the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst. 3,000 people. Thanks be to God. But my question for you is, are you, are you one of them? And I think we need to hear it too. Listen, it's really easy to grow up knowing the right things or have, or have a pattern of hearing the right things or to grow up under good teaching or preaching. It's really easy to be Uh, visibly moral or to know what the right things to say are or what goodness looks like and still be without faith. It happens all the time. Are you one of those who have looked to Jesus and said, I'm guilty and I'm sorry and you're my only hope? Let me just tell you, as someone who is in as much need of grace as you, there is a way out from your guilt. It's not too late, and it's never too early to repent and turn to Jesus, the same one who died for your guilt is the one who stands ready to receive you. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, you who are at work at all times and in every way imaginable and ways seen and unseen, pray that you would be at work in each of us now. That you would be stirring us in our faith, that for many of us where our faith might feel distant or cold, that you would be warming and thawing it and drawing us to life. 
For those of us who don't have faith, I pray that you would be working, proclaiming the truth of Jesus to hearts right now. And that you would be helping us, building us in faith, helping us to trust you. I pray that you would take these scriptures and apply them to our own hearts, that they might do surgery on us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.